may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We hear in our gospel the earliest accounts of Epiphany today, all the way back in the first chapter of John's gospel. It's a text that call, is a call story of how John the Baptist's disciples came to know about the Son of God, as John says, this Jesus. And of course, Jesus' response to them was, come and see. These men who came to know about Jesus, you need to know, and you probably do, they were not noble. They were not regal statesmen in the Jewish society. They were simple fishermen. Not one of them was a professional. Not one of them was a biz, big business executive, and nobody was trained to run sophisticated machinery, nor were they highly educated. They probably didn't even read. They were fishermen, men who earned their way in this world by using their hands, ordinary people. Maybe the Bible's trying to make a point that through this lowly birth of Jesus, not born into any sort of segment that we would consider, or even no awareness of culture, no privilege or position of education or political powerfulness, and then through ordinary men, that anybody can become a disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are human. They come from all walks of life and even different theological persuasions. Just look at the other brothers and sisters gathered here on this cold morning for worship. There is a wide range of backgrounds presented. Some have educational alphabets hung behind their names. Some are richer or poorer than the rest. And as far as I know, we do not have a Superman, a Clark Kent type in our midst, but maybe I'm wrong. We come to God as ordinary people. That's my point and thereby incapable of doing very much on our own for the reign of God. But even to say such things is to deny our life. Chances are very good that we've had more education, more knowledge, more diverse skills than any of the four disciples in this morning's passage. The point of the text seems to indicate that this creating disciples in Christ's name isn't dependent upon us as much as it is on the power of Jesus. History's full of examples of those who were anything but Christ-like until they were touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, the gospel writer, was a despised tax collector who got rich off of selling off his own people. And then there's Peter, Cephas, who Jesus says is the rock of the church. And you know how he denies everything knowing Jesus when Jesus stood trial? Then there's the first missionary that only gets mentioned at least three times throughout John's gospel, and that is Andrew. Andrew is the one who tells his brothers to follow Jesus. Andrew sees the Son of God, Jesus, for who he truly is. Someone who, the Bible says, is the Lamb of God. Somebody who has the power to remove dirt and grime and filth, which we call sin, and to make his life for the better. So Andrew reaches out to his brother because he wants to share the glory of this moment. One of the things I appreciate about the Gospel of John is all its symbolism. It is loaded with images about searching and seeing Jesus for who he truly is. 
The first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John are found in this passage this morning, and you'll note what they say. Jesus does not say anything about himself. He simply says, what are you looking for? They weren't words like, worship me. Just simply, what are you looking for? To which he replies, come and see. It's an invitation. It's an invitation that Jesus extends the very first thing he does in the gospel. It's a call story. But unlike so many call stories in scripture, this one is really not dramatic. It's not decisive. It's not like the call of Moses and his brother Aaron or anybody else. There's no flashing light, no booming voice. There's no clear instructions as to what the disciples are even supposed to be doing. So I'm following this guy, Jesus. What am I supposed to do? There's no instruction. But it is the question that forms the foundation for understanding what a call is under all about. The question is, what are you looking for? Note what the question isn't. It's not what do you want to do or what do you want to produce or achieve or even prove with your life. It's not what do others expect you to do. No, the question is, what are you looking for? What's important? What is it that will fill your life with purpose and with joy and with meaning? You see, when the disciples are called by Jesus, they were already doing something else. They weren't sitting around throwing rocks at each other. They were all busy trying to make a living the best they knew how. And in this sense, Jesus was an interruption. An interruption that would change their life, no doubt. But something, and the Bible isn't clear about this, there was something about Jesus that they saw dropping their nets was better, and to follow Jesus was better than just hanging around and keeping the status quo. The Bible tells us they were already serving as disciples of John, probably involved themselves in a pecking order, comfortable with their roles as John's disciples and not getting too anxious and upsetting the apple cart by shifting gears in midstream by following this new guy, Jesus. But there must have been something about this Jesus and something about his question that had them hooked. Jesus invites them into their imagination, a vision. What are you looking for? Jesus invites them into a new way of seeing the world, not with human eyes, but the way that God sees it. Not necessarily through a sense of duty, but through a passion. Andrew and Simon, the Bible says, jump ship. They start moving in a new direction, and amidst the business, they become disciples of Jesus because he had hope and a future to these otherwise ordinary human beings. They become the first disciples. That word disciple is an interesting one. It comes from the same root in English that we have as discipline. To be a disciple of Jesus means you can't admire him from afar. There are many people who do that, and that's completely fine, but that is not discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you can't stand at the edge of a discipleship circle, who shake your heads and agree with what you hear from him, but who are yet far from being disciples living in a discipline of the Lord. There's a difference there which is a discipline of love and of service. And then there's the John the Baptist in our text. John says he's not the light. 
and that he can only reflect what God has placed in his heart. I think that speaks to true discipleship. It always allows for the glory of Jesus to shine alone and not for our own self-glory. I'm sure that Paul and Peter, nor any of the great followers of Christ, had any idea that they would be remembered as individuals. Saints never do. But they did all their power and influence to make sure that Christ was known. Even Martin Luther, the great Luther had this to say about himself. Luther said, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Other than that, I didn't do anything else. And he had the ability to transform the world. Luther's power came like John the Baptist's power, and that was to simply reflect the light of Christ and make sure that Jesus would be known. All who follow Christ are called, called through our baptism to be God's person in the world. But the call is not a voice from heaven giving us a printout with specific directions. Sometimes life would be a little bit easier, perhaps. Rather, this call is a lifelong question that burns within our hearts and our souls, given to us by the one who encourages curiosity from the very beginning and models risk and offers life. It's not easy work to be a disciple. You probably know that by now in your own walk with Christ. Something got you out of bed on this morning when the temperature is barely zero. I hope it's the call of the Holy Spirit. This work in telling our faith story, but it is so necessary for the sake of the world. It's not easy, but it is necessary. Necessary for the world that God so loves. And that, my friends, is epiphany. Amen.